This is a Stand Up New York Labs production, providing you podcasts since 2013. Hey everybody, Raylan Casper White here with another festive episode of X-Ray. Folks, I have gone academic. I have uh, left the world of banal platitudes and entered the world of academics uh, and literacy. I am here with the author uh, Ro- Roshanak. Roshanak. Thank you. I fucked it up already. Let me back it up. I am here with author Roshanak Kishti, uh, who wrote a brilliant um, book called Switched on Bach. Or Bach. I'm supposed to say Bach, aren't I? Bach. Bach. Get it really guttural. Get it Middle Eastern. Right. Because that's where Johan was from. It's actually Egyptian. Nobody knew. This is a series called 33 and a Third coming out from Bloomsbury. And it's, it's, it packs a punch. It's, uh, it's small, but it's dense. I had to read every page at least twice. Um, can I call you Roshi? Yes. Okay, good. See, I, I try and make a nickname and hope that it's the right one. Can you give me just a little, people give the audience a little background on you? Yes, I am a professor. Oh, okay, I, great. That <laughs> wraps it up then. It was I, good talking that's to you. A, that's it. I, uh, I'm an anthropologist. I'm okay. I'm a cultural anthropologist. Are there anthropologists that are not cultural? That's right. There what are, are bone people. There bone are people. fossil people. Okay. There are garbage people. There are... Ever? Garbage. I want to get a garbage person on here. Is it like a, landfills? In the st- yes, you can be an archaeologist who studies ancient landfills. Wow. Yeah. That sounds cool. That's not what I do. Okay, sorry. But you're a cultural anthropologist. I am. And um, do you focus on a feminist theory or? I do, yes. I, I, my, my focus is popular culture. Okay, okay. And um, I, in particular, music. Okay, and are you a musician as well? I am. Okay, amazing. So let me just give, let me see if I can summarize this because I was fascinated by this book. Switched on Bach, I did not know, was I think one of the most popular, cla- was calling it classical music, but it's this um, uh, woman, Wendy Carlos, formerly Walter Carlos, who I don't want to say is transsexual because she didn't like that term. She prefers transgender. Am I right on that? Uh, who would, was the pioneer in terms of using the Moog analog synthesizer. We're going to get into all this because this was all new to me. And she made a electronic, I'm sorry if I'm using the wrong terms, electronic uh, rendition of a lot of Bach pieces. That became extremely popular, and they kind of revolutionized the electronic. She also did the soundtracks to Clockwork Orange and Tron and The Shining, so she's kind of a successful yes. scorer as well. She scored. She scored. <laughs> I don't know. I, don't, I mean, she doesn't. I didn't really hear too much about her sexual escapade. She seems like a private person. But um, you talk about how her being um, uh, transsex. Okay, tr- tr- at the time, transsexual person and and making electronic music was a, a sign of the time the more cultural ramifications of, of her using the moog synthesizer and gender as synthesis i mean it's a whole thing right it's a whole fucking thing i didn't know i didn't know right. can you summarize the book in like a log line yeah i i i like to talk about the project as um a social history of a musical instrument and I talk about how it originated in research for um, spyware and spy mm-hmm. technology. Mm-hmm. So um, the book really tries to go beyond just the biography of the of the musician to think about why an album like this would be the most popular classical record 
you know, ever, ever produced in 1968, pretty much through the 70s. What was it about the record that made so many people who wouldn't even describe themselves as as electronic music aficionados, right. classical music fans, what made them gravitate toward this? Well, would purists um, like cringe when you call this a classical album? Uh, there was certainly controversy around that, but you may have caught the quote from Glenn Gould, who is a... Uh, uh, he's an amazing pianist. Yeah, he was pianist. also like a half a lunatic, wasn't he? Like uh, brilliant, in a brilliant way. I, I, I can't comment on the latter, okay, but okay. Um, he claims that um, Carlos, as a, as a classical musician, right. um, is one of the greatest he's ever heard. Wow. So, Did she play as a classical pianist first? She was, um, so, so she worked on what was called tape music before electronic music became widely known. Okay. Tape music was essentially, you know, I saw some cassette tapes right behind my head there. Oh, wow. So well, you vintage. Take, you <laughs> take essentially a large, very, very large cassette tape. Okay. Is that um, like an eight track? It's it's a reel to reel. Okay. So it's it's not just an eight track, but it's like a giant machine with giant tape, and you you use razor blades to edit sound. And, and oh that, wow, it's like editing film, right? Yes. Where you're literally slicing the frames. Exactly. So it was it was called tape music. Oh wow! And she she trained in uh, compositions um, in that medium before she started you know, essentially innovating in the medium of the synthesizer. Oh, wow. Okay, so I just want to understand the genesis. So first, we had this amazing woman who was doing this reel-to-reel. I mean, there's a beautiful sentence where she talks about how synthesis, I don't want to say synthesized music, because that was also, that had kind of a negative connotation Mm -hmm. to it, saved her life. She went from almost putting razors to her wrists to razors to tape, which I thought was a beautiful image. The, The Moog, which I guess... She worked in conjunction with Robert Moog. To, is an analog synthesizer. I, I had to understand. I don't understand the difference between. Do you play on a keyboard and then you manipulate the sound with knobs? Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So before the keyboard even showed up, it was literally these boxes with knobs, and okay. you connected chords like these. Okay. Into different, you know, essentially holes in these boxes. And each connection would create a new sound. And it's very similar looking to uh, a switchboard. You know, right. when you, you, you may recall in the 50s. These women sitting there chatting about exactly. shopping and then connecting calls. Exactly. It was the same, same concept. Okay. And no keyboard. And so the keyboard came in after essentially Carlos, you know, recommended okay. that this kind of has no real purpose to musicians without giving us the opportunity to manipulate Manipulate. it. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I found interesting, which I did not know, there's so, I have so many questions. I really found this fascinating. The piano at some point was symbolized like domestic womanhood, correct? Where it was this thing that women could do was it Victorian times and they, they would practice at home. But then I guess men wanted to kind of take it back. Is that right? So they thought they were going to innovate the piano and get a masculine energy back to it by upgrading, taking it out of the house. Is that, or Mm -hmm. making it, is that, can you speak on that a little bit? 
Yeah, so, you know, the piano is a really, I mean, talk about geeking out. I could geek out on the piano. Hey, I love the piano. I can't play for shit. I have no musical inclination. I like listening to music, and I can move. I got a groove, but I'm not good with, like. Well, and, and so, you know, you describe yourself as someone who doesn't know how to play the piano, but you've certainly probably seen them your whole life. Yep. Sitting in a house. Yes. As a piece of furniture. With like a plant on top. Yeah. Mold rust, an ugly child trying to play and being horrible. Yeah. Parents encouraging. Yes. I always think that's sad. Torture. Yeah. You know, yeah. happening to children. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so so that instrument um, came to be in every home in the world because it came to symbolize upward mobility. Mm-hmm. And okay. so if you had aspirations to, you know, let others you know, believe that you were middle class, the piano was one of the first ways to do that. And this started in the 19th century. Wow. Okay. So that's the, the petite bourgeoisie you yes. were talking about. Another new term, I learned, petite bourgeoisie. <laughs> there was the bourgeoisie, which I guess were the noble people, that's right. the aristocrats. And then suddenly, is it because, I mean, is it because modernization, less agriculture, less feudal landlord? Am I right? I mean, history is, again, not my forte. So then people, there's a middle class growing with different industries and I guess artisans or whatever. And they also, that also correlated to use listening to Bach, yes, <sighs> right? right. I mean, right. it's all connected. So as the piano became a symbol, playing Bach also made him seem like, look, we're highfalutin. Right. And Bach had been dead for 150 years. That's nice. Good by for the him. time. Yeah. The, no, I'm saying he's like back in. Yeah, yeah. So it was in the, you know, in the late 19th century, Bach was this kind of symbol of opulence from centuries ago mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it became very fashionable to play Bach in your home to entertain your friends and, and just your Bach like what about you know a little Beethoven or Mozart so not just Bach of course okay not just a but he was like a pop he was like the prince exactly or the Taylor Swift of that's exactly I don't right. know if I put Prince and Taylor Swift in the same sentence I'm sorry I did that to all the Prince fans so at what point when are we talking about because something I read about Lennon Lenin comes into play. I, when was Lenin? Lenin was was twentieth century. Am I right? right? Okay. So That's after right. the piano gets in as a domesticated item of furniture, in the meantime, now again, I'm always so confused because Russia right now not good, right? Cold War not not our friends, mm-hmm. but World War Two they were our friends for a bit, right? And then World War One were they our friends? Yes. Yeah, so so Lenin was our friend. Okay. So so um, one of the you know as we know you know. Bedfellows, friends, frenemies. Yeah, frenemies. Yeah, of course. You know, yeah. countries have these complicated relationships yes. with their exes. Right. <laughs> you still fuck them when you're horny. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'd do it. And so um, Lenin had hired this uh, electronics, you know, Her, Is that Lev? Does Lev do? Lev, Lev Terman. Oh, Jew? Yes. Nice. And he... Uh, he was designing basically spyware. Okay. Um, he was trying to develop technology that could essentially um, determine spatially where where the enemy was. Okay. Mm. They're called proximity sensors. Okay. So is it like a radar? Um, kind of like a radar, but more so within a very close proximity okay. rather than a long distance proximity. Oh, right. That's the whole condenser thing that yes. the human body actually disrupts the sound wave and changes once the actual human, the human acts as a whatever. Ex- conductor. A con- con- conductor, condenser, yeah, whatever. Exactly. Okay. 
So he um, he went on to be famous well, as, as the Fuck, developer right. of the theremin. Right. So he changed his name when he came to the States for reasons I don't understand. He migrated to the U.S.? Yeah. What, he moved to Brooklyn or something? Uh, I Ed believe so. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Coney Island, hang out with the other Russians and ride the Ferris wheel. Probably. Hand out theremins on the boardwalk. Right. Okay, so he changed his name to what? Theremin. Oh, oh, what was he before then? Termin. 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 Oh, I don't know why. Theremin sounds more like a medication that helps it, you sleep. Yeah, it does. Okay. It does. All right. So, okay. So how did the theremin morph into the Moog? Um, so Bob Moog and Moog, you, sorry. It, it, you don't have to be sorry because. It's in, double O, dude. popular yeah. use, it's Moog. Moog, okay. But um, he, he went by Moog. He went by Moog. Okay. Bob Moog was a huge fan of theremins mm. and so he started uh tinkering with creating his own theremin even in high school oh he was like a prodigy dude yeah he didn't get laid at all he was just making <laughs> he theremins has progeny oh does he all right well something <laughs> happened well, he only takes once god knows um okay so moog and then he started playing and making okay yeah and so from there he started collaborating with a number of um colleagues you know don bukla is a colleague that was okay. based in california and okay. they were both collaborating and on this is in the 60s or 50s this is in the early 60s, 60s. so he wasn't part of that movement that was trying to re make make the um piano more masculine he was actually on on the good guy side right so basically what happened between world war one and right around the time of say vietnam just before mm -hmm. um a lot of uh, effort went into um, developing research around music um, as, as very potent and virile. And so there was a movement out of Italy, um, the Italian futurists, okay. who were essentially fascists. Okay, Mussolini. Who, yes. Right. And so they were huge proponents of noise as a representation of virile Italian masculinity. Oh, interesting. Italians, they, they have a big chip on their shoulder with their masculinity. But then you go to Milan, and these straight dudes are like, you know what I mean? They look spend 64 hours in front of the mirror with the hair gel and the, the overly curated suits. Yeah. Snug, like slim pant leg. It's all very confusing. It is. Um, does the Italian soccer players are the only ones that I'd, you know what I mean? That I'd fuck. Okay. That's your hairstyle too. Right? They do, well, they do. And they wear that little band, you know right. what I mean? They got that great hair. And then you see the other teams, you know, the Brits, God help me. Uh -huh. Um, so, okay. I'm sorry. Again, you tackle so many different things. It's a very, uh, comprehensive study of this because let's go back for a minute. There's some terms I need you to clarify for me. Mm -hmm. Cause again, there's a feminist aspect here and the gender aspect. And then how Wendy Carlos and the synthesizer, um, hers particular analog synthesizer. Explain the one difference to me between an analog synthesizer and a synthesized instrument. Okay. So, so an analog synthesizer is what this book is about. Okay. An analog um, synthesizer is essentially sound made completely out of electricity coming okay. out of the wall. It's not the result of striking mm -hmm. something. It's it's really just the manipulation of, of voltage, sound waves, a voltage, of okay. voltage, okay. And so that voltage is pushed through a number of filters mm -hmm. that will alter the sound, okay. And so it's just pure electricity that you're hearing, okay. That's being manipulated. 
What happens um, in the late 70s, early 80s is this shift to digital synthesizers. Okay. And so digital, as we know, is the... It's like zero sum kind of, right? Ones and zeros. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very different structure to the creation of the sound. Yes. Yes. And so the distinction that a lot of people who play the synthesizer draw is that analog is often described as very warm Mm -hmm. and digital is described as not warm and and it, you know, suggests that it's cold. But some people, you know, say that's just made up, you know. Well, it's interesting. I read once uh, this manifesto by, was it Jared Lanier? Lanier, do you know him? No. He, He, I think he had to do with virtual reality. He's like a big tech guy. Um, kind of looks like a Buddha. Um, he wrote, I am not a gadget. And it was like this short manifesto. And he talks about how, and I don't remember if it was like a negative lament or just this is the reality of how digital music, you're not, you can't really manipulate. Mm-hmm. You hit it, you know what I mean? And then again, it's it is all about, you know, culture and how we've become, you know, uh, accustomed to the nuances are gone. Yeah. And, um, and so the interesting part about the analog synthesizer, it is a marriage of this digital culture, but still being able to manipulate. The difference between playing, when I talk to my friends that are composers, they lament when they're recording on MIDI that it's okay for, let's say, a piano, so to speak, because you can, the manipulation of piano is less than, I think, what you can do with strings, mm-hmm. you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Uh, or flute, where there's actually breath coming from the body, or the string where you actually, you know, the piano, you're touching it, and it's, right, it's a hammer hitting a thing. Um that with MIDI, you can't do that. Like, you want a real orchestra to record the string section. Yeah. But I guess that's improved, too. I mean, now you can, but it's still, I, I can hear the difference, I think. Maybe I'm full of shit. I say that about red wine, too, and I can't tell the fucking difference <laughs> between a $3,000 bottle and two-buck chuck. Um, but, okay, so let's go back for a minute. Um, we talk about the cyborg, right? And this is how you all connect this to this marriage of, of digital and manipulation and feminism. So explain that what the cyborg means and how that connects to the feminist movement or how the, Wendy Carlos's identity as a cyborg, you know, if you can elaborate on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, this, the, the concept of the cyborg um, is, is this kind of um, idealist figure in feminism. Okay. okay. Is that where it started? didn't start in sci-fi? Uh, it did start in um, it. It didn't start in feminism, but the the feminist cyborg okay. that I'm talking yes. about comes. It's an idea that comes from one of my professors. Her name is Donna Haraway. Okay, and so she developed this concept in order to try and find a way to thrive despite all the ways that. Uh, you know, technology and, you know, various kinds of patriarchal and capitalist Mm -hmm. systems were trying to essentially do away with, you know, for example, the the woman, you know. Okay. So just thinking about reproductive, you know, health Mm -hmm. and reproductive rights as one example of that, right? Well, how do you correlate, though? Because I would think that with the rise of technology, as opposed to a man's ability to work the fields and the woman's at home, technology would be a bit of an equalizer. Mm -hmm. Or there would be, you could create and you wouldn't know, as opposed to like singing or, you know, your visual. You have a man creating and a woman creating something. You don't know if they're man or woman. So is technology also cited in feminism as an equalizer or no? Uh, it depends, I guess. You know, I mean, for w- in in the context of this co- idea, right. okay, 
um, the the this this is a idea that was also developed in a manifesto. Okay. It's called the Cyborg Manifesto. I'll read it. And so this manifesto essentially uh, starts with a conundrum, right? So essentially just as we perceive women to be reaching a certain state of equality with men mm -hmm. through technology, yep. what we see is that those women now have, have produced people under them who have to do all the dirty work that they can no longer do in order to be present in the public sphere, in the workplace with men, right? Can you give me an example? So, you know, thinking about the exploitation of domestic workers. Okay. Right? So most of the, so for example, I just heard a story about these fires, you know, the Getty fire. Mm -hmm. um, apparently all of these, you know, laborers showed up to their jobs anyway oh, fuck. in the context of these, you know, yeah. fires because they didn't want to be fired. fired. Yeah, okay. Um, and so, you know, she's lamenting that... Um, you mean women are also abusing power? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So it's a downfall for feminism in the sense that we finally, women finally have more power, but they're just turning into dudes by see, taking someone, so to speak, lower than them and, and exploiting them. Exactly. So it doesn't change the fact that exploitation is still taking place. Right. It's just less women are exploiting. And I'm sure some feminists will be like, great. Okay, fine. We've been exploited long enough. But that's what's interesting to me in this book. And I didn't know also in terms of it. I did not know that within the um, the gay community, they're, they're also, so to speak, extremists that are not serving. You know what I mean? We talked about, you talk about this extremist gay uh, not libertarian, but liberation, liberation, liberation that was pissed off at Wendy for finding even more nuances in the binary, you know, being non-binary, so to speak, mm -hmm. because at that point, I guess at the beginning of the movement, well, not the beginning, but at the peak, they're like, no, like you're not serving the gay community by saying, well, I'm beyond that, or I'm not that, or I can't yeah. be pigeonholed. Is that right? right? I right. did not know that. Right. I mean, so so 1968, this is when this record came out. Okay. Right? Um, this was the same era of the Stonewall Rebellion, mm -hmm. and it also happened in New York City. I live right by the Stonewall, where the, the Stonewall, Stonewall was. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. So that 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 um, historical coincidence is something I, I think about in this book. Mm -hmm. No coincidences um, in history, huh? Exactly. Right. Butterfly, fly. What is that proverb? Butterfly flaps its wings and something happens. Right. There's an earthquake around right. the world. I don't right. know. I, the right. global warming, I guess, it, it, make, it even rings more true. Go ahead. Sorry. Exactly. So, you know, Carlos was working uptown, right? At oh, the, she was at, an uptowner. Yeah. Oh, she was working that. at the Columbia Princeton Electronic Oh, wow. That's Music way up Center. there. Okay. And cheaper real estate. <laughs> no, it is cheaper. A little okay. darker, too. Did you go to Columbia? No, I did. Okay. I mean, I've been to Columbia University. Yeah, I don't, I'm not, I'm, I don't dig the neighborhood. Some good ramen places, but I find that neighborhood depressing. Sorry, that's just me. I'm more of a Stone West Village area. Okay, so then there's the downtown scene, which is where the Stonewall yeah. riots mm -hmm. were. Okay. And so... And that was considered the more, I don't want to say extremist, because that has a negative connotation, too, but you're saying... Did you call it extremist, gay? No, no, no. The, the, the name of the group that um, some of these you know, rioters yes. were a part of was called the Gay Liberation Front. Okay, okay. So um, they were very vocal, very out, very in the streets, okay. and they paid the price for that. Were they pro-violent protests too? 
Um, I mean, they were pro defending themselves against police. police yeah. You okay. Know? And so police policing against trans, uh, you know, trans people and gay people and lesbians in the sixties was like the most common thing. Okay. Right. Because right. it was right. still considered illegal. Right. It so, was considered illegal at that point. It, well, yeah. I mean, according to some local statutes. Really? Wow. Yes. Okay. So, so one of the things that um, I'm referring to is in the book is this expose um, that was written by one of the members of mm-hmm. the uh, Gay Liberation okay. Front. Is that Bill? Yes. Okay. Yes. I have um, a good memory today. Yes, Fuck. you do. <laughs> um, I can't remember who I fucked on Tuesday, but I can remember this guy, Bill. Go ahead. <laughs> so so uh, he was um, trying to get Wendy Carlos to be a very vocal and present representative okay. for this movie. But she was already achieving success yes. as a musical, as a score. Did those movies come out yet? No. Okay. Th- those were, were not for But her time. albums were popular yes, already. Exactly. Okay. Oh, interesting. Did she um, have enough of an audience? Did her um, transgenderism uh, affect her music sales, or did she find a wide audience that didn't give a shit? Well, um, once this uh, expose was published. This is in Playboy? This is in Playboy right. magazine. Um, I used to like Playboy a lot. I found it tasteful. You changed your mind. Well, I mean, now you can just find delightful stuff online. Playboy <laughs> seems so archaic. It's like you see the nude centerfold. I'm like, I want to get in there. What's like the deep angle on the labia? You know what I mean? It's all just like very human vision. These days you can really get the what's happening inside and with different lighting and filters. Right. But I found Playboy to be delightful. And I'm, you know what I mean? I, I, I explore everything. But at the time as a tot, it was just inspiring to me. Uh-huh. Aspirational living. Sure, you know sure. What I mean, you With could get, do good paper mache. And yeah, the, the, it was always very like you know, Hugh Hefner-y and yeah, and it, a mystique to it. The bunny ears. The bunny. It was always nice sexualizing yeah. small animals. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> but okay, so go ahead. So she was in the uptown scene. Okay, she he wanted to be her to be a representative. He made this expose, and yeah. then so after the after this article, which was one of the most widely distributed articles in Playboy history. Wow. And did it feel like a hate piece? She interpreted it that way. Oh, but when you read it, I'm sure you read it. Obviously, did yes. you come? Did it come across? Do you have to be ultra sensitive? You're like, no. Even the most callous person would find this hurtful. Um, you know, it was um, doing something that happens often with trans people. It was it was emphasizing the medicalized mm. procedural parts of the experience and not the human side of the experience right so just simply um you know whatever the the person claims as their gender today yeah, yeah right yeah. so you know bell recapitulated over and over again to this kind of return to pre-transition which i think was very damaging for mm. carlos that's unfortunate was she one of the first public figures that was a transgender she and, and she went through the whole thing? Uh, that I don't know. I can't speak to that. Okay. She's very private. Okay, so, okay. Um, but before her, um, there were just a couple of, you know, kind of spectacularized you know, Like cases. Renee Richards. Exactly. Was that around the same time? Um, maybe slightly before. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's amazing. Uh, so, yeah, I didn't know that there was, like, infighting, so to speak. And, and I wonder if... He was he was doing it um, 
So you're saying he was one of the members of the Gay Liberation Front. That's right. But also, I'm sure as writing for Playboy, they also wanted to sell magazines and that kind of voyeuristic into the medical exactly. part of it was more sensationalist than how does she feel on the inside? Nobody gives a fuck. It's like Playboy. Do they really care what the models feel like on the inside? I don't think that the readers, you know, give a shit. Like, I think that, you know. Yeah, and, and I try to acknowledge that in, in you know, because I went to the New York Public Library and I, I consulted his paper. Oh, wow, okay. And, you know, I, I could see that he... Um, he had a different persona in the archive than he does in that piece. Yeah, he's probably the corporate's probably like yeah. get some, some, you know, smut. Yeah, so, so to speak. I think that maybe Playboy had a hand in how that got edited. Mm. Did they ever speak? Do you know if Bell and Carlos ever spoke afterwards and um, reconciled? You know, there were a few mentions in this in this particular section of the archive where um, there were there were some efforts to reconcile things, but I don't think they were able to reconcile no. things. No, oh, that's she's still alive. She is. Is he alive? No, he's not. Yeah, <laughs> there you go, Bill. Sorry. Um, can we talk about nature culture? Because that confused the fuck out of me. Um, you talked about. First, maybe you can define it for me, but also, you t- and I want to dive, first define it for me, then I'll ask you the question about Bach and the churches and mm-hmm. the acoustics. Uh-huh. So, you know, going back to this feminist cyborg, you know, um, Donna Haraway has this idea called nature culture. So, essentially... Um, oh, right, but did we ever define the cyborg? Did we ever wrap that up? We, I don't think well, so. Well, yeah, but let's wrap that maybe up first. Maybe this is better to start with. Let's start with, then we can circle yeah. back. Sure. Um, so, so, in essence, when you think about the history of science, um, those things that are considered natural okay. and wild, mm-hmm. right, are um, the, considered to be the opposite of refined, civilized culture. Okay. Okay. So law is categorized under the area of culture. Okay. And, you know, things like, um, obviously, botany uh, is in the area of nature. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Haraway argues that women are put into the category of nature because of the biological function that they serve in, in, you know, proliferating the species. Yeah, like Mother Earth. Yeah, exactly. Can it be Uncle Earth? Right. Okay. I mean, I'm happy it's Mother Earth, but go ahead. So so when she looks at the cyborg as an opportunity to dispense with that limited right. categorization for women okay and and creates this idea of nature culture women is both um, biologically endowed which mm-hmm. she doesn't deny and doesn't want to um, do away with by any means but also women as the result of you know various technological interventions like you know IEDs and right. or, or I mean I what are they well, called? Well, IUD is the bomb, isn't it? IUD. IUD. Oh, hey. Some guy was, yeah. <laughs> IUD, which was so a bomb close yet so far women. away. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. you know, all the kinds of interventions, you know, even birth control mm-hmm. is, you know, an intervention that alters yes. the body. Yes. But beyond that, you know, thinking about women as um, simultaneously uh, endowed with. The right. capacity, but also for not nature. having that particular function if they choose not to. Right, and but also having this capacity to um, 
be go beyond that. Yeah. And that's what the cyborg stands in okay. for. Where what movie is cyborg in? Is it Blade Runner or something? Yes, actually. Yeah. Okay. So they use that. So that's where that word came from from Blade Runner no, and then she used it for film or the other way around. I think the word comes from science fiction, um, from literature around That predates Blade Runner? Yes. Okay. In the like sixties and seventies. Okay. So Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, so then we talk about nature culture. You talk about how, here, I'm going to, it says here that, you know, that Bach, um, Bach, I love saying it, it makes me feel hot, talked about how he was the first, not the first, but could combine the, the flesh with the sound. I mean, get on that, because again, I read that, and I was like, well, first of all, what makes him different than other composers? Because again, I think every composer thought about the acoustics of a church and how their music is going to sound in different space and time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so to speak. So how do you, you marrying the flesh with the, like, t- talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, the he was an innovator in his time, okay, and which is why he continues to be, you know, talked about, right? Yeah, um, and he predates Beethoven and Mozart. Where does he come in the timeline of those big dudes? So he's working around the late, you know, seventeen hundreds, okay, okay, and he is he's creating a new form of liturgical music for the space of the cathedral that um, really takes seriously these new instruments that were being developed. And this is after Beethoven? I'm just trying to put these guys in my head. Um, Do we know? Do I I need to Google it? Okay. I I need to But these guys, Beethoven, Mozart, they were all started with church music, or Bach was unique in that he was first and foremost a liturgical dude. You know, I think Bach was was particularly um, sincere and pious, okay. and so wrote in okay. you know in a way that innovated mm. as a result of that with the pipe organs and such. Yes, okay, exactly. Okay, so he would futz around with the pipe organs and get yeah. Different I mean, sounds? he wrote he wrote for many instruments, but it was he was almost what we would you know think about today as like. A, an artist who makes site-specific installations. Mm, yeah. He did that for music. So he was different in that regard. That's yeah. what I was wondering. Yes, okay. he was. Which is cool. So he'd go into a space and be like, okay, I'm going to throw neon paint in this corner. Exactly. He There'll would be write a, it for okay. that space and for that, you know, for those uh, musicians. And, um, and I think that was one of the innovations that he, he you know, left. Yeah, that, that, yeah. That, uh, Carlos picks up on. That Carlos picks up on. Okay, okay, all right. I would like to go into the original synth, but I think that I, I want to kind of get to other stuff first here. Um, it was interesting to me how the critics at the time, again, on Switched on Bach, how um, electronic or certain um, types of, of music, because obviously there was electronic music that predated Wendy Carlos, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. there was stuff happening, I guess, on keyboard. and Again, we'll talk about the synthesizer, how, how synthesis actually means to renew and integrate something in a new way. Mm-hmm. Um, you want some water? Go ahead. Uh, and then, but synthesizer then came to be, to signify like an imitation and not as good as the original, right? So synthesis has a good meaning to it. Synthesizer sounds like someone got a Casio for Christmas and is making stupid shit. Right. Right. I mean, the origins of the concept synthesize, I mean, synthesis is yeah. actually. Like photosynthesis. Well, it's, it's a, it's a seafaring concept. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And it was designed to measure the tides of the ocean. And then it kind of uh, morphed over the 20th century into something fake, something artificial. Right. And so that's a part of the curiosity that I have. Why? 
why did it how and why did it change from being this organic thing yeah to representing you know something artificial right right it's so funny because i find like wendy is definitely maybe it's insecurity but she's definitely not humble compared herself to Picasso, like you read her quotes, you know what I mean? She's like, you guys are fucking idiots. I'm brilliant. Oh, Picasso makes some weird faces. Like, you know, that's her corollary. I was like, all right, Wendy, take it down a pig. Even though I, I guess I, re- I watched uh, Hannah Gadsby's uh, show, you know, talked about Picasso was a dick. I didn't know that. He was a misogynist prick, but I still like his art. I mean, yeah. what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I mean, I'm sure they're all dicks. Um, I had no idea what metonymic, metonymic means. What does that mean? Um, so a metonym is a literary device, okay. you know, like a metaphor. Okay. And so a metonym stands in for something much bigger than it. Oh, okay. Can you give me an example or is that too much, too specific um, of a So question? like calling, you know, a group of men suits. Okay. Oh, I like that. So a suit, you know, is a metonym. Metonym. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. Um, I wrote here, I have all these notes here. Keyboard is a crutch. So one thing I wanted to ask you, okay, wait, piano womanhood, hold on. Isn't this cute? Look how nifty it is. You could take it in and take it to the bathroom with you too. Um, I don't mean that as a disparaging. I get some of my best reading done when I'm taking it. I talk about, oh, okay. So one thing I want to talk to you about, you talked about this kind of music on the moog, the moog, moog as shape shifting. And now I was not familiar, familiar that, uh, there was Jesus, of course, our Lord and Savior, but there was shape shifting in terms of for many years, as you know, in in voodoo and and I guess in paganism, right? Mm-hmm. And then Jesus again, obviously sh- shifted shapes. So what? Where, where are we going with that? Yeah. So um, what I'm I'm proposing something in this book, okay, that you know. Is, is you know you can take it or leave it um but the idea is that one of the one of the things that appeals to you know devotees of christianity and, okay. and, and jesus is the the story about his resurrection right right and so what is resurrection it's a it's a sh- it's a changing of um you know a form, right? Mm-hmm. It's a form yes. of metamorphosis. Yes. Okay. And so the the synthesizer, um, one of the key functions on a synthesizer is shape shifting. You can you can alter the shape of the wave. Uh, as in the analog one. Yes. Right. As right. you're manipulating the instrument. Yes. So I am, you know, it kind of taking some creative license to interpret uh, that, that, you know, ability, um, th- you know, that, that an instrument gives a user that ability. I'm, I'm, I'm making the claim that this is a universal desire. Right. To a need. shape. Right. So, yeah. Well, I think shift shape kind of stands in, maybe it's a metonym. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> where I'm a pantheist, so I, I take everything that I like. But I always found that this idea of really clinging to the resurrection or clinging in general, the afterlife, all this stuff is just comfort, right? I mean, for me, that that's the purpose that religion mostly, mm-hmm. you know, serves most people. It's not making everybody a good person and help your other. It's kind of getting these sense of the world or giving some meaning they can't find inherently and just by existing. 
but then it gives you comfort if there is an afterlife. Like if I'm dead, I'm not just a piece of dirt right. to be, you know what right. I mean? Right. And I guess the shape, the resurrection too, like even if you fuck up or don't fuck up because you're Jesus, you still come back as something else, right? Mm-hmm. And it comes in with karma and samsara or whatever. I right. guess, well, samsara means you stop doing that, right? I don't know. I'm not trying to remember what samsara means. I got to get back into my Hinduism, get my little cheat sheet on Hinduism. But I guess there's something, a sense of control over your yeah. destiny. So I think obviously manipulating controls, and again, that's also related to the digital versus analog, where you have more control and you can bring some more personal expression into your creation. Mm-hmm. These days they do so much on a computer. It is a touch of a keyboard, but I guess you can also look at that as you're also creating and manip- you know, manipulating uh-huh. in a sense that maybe is more, just as labor intensive, but maybe more subtle. You know what I mean? Where you're not mm-hmm. looking at it's hot Perlman kind of touching that thing, but there's hours behind the computer doing CGI and the result looks real, but who knows how many 6,000 sure. people were working on it. Sure. So I think that there's just as much beauty and and um, channeling godliness through, you know, supreme technological feats as there is to, you know, one guy with the theremin. Does that, does right. you agree with that statement? Right, right. I mean, that's what the feminist cyborg is, 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 it's a an idea that allows the the woman to not be limited by the container mm-hmm. of the reproductive system. Right. Right. And you know, in the in the case of this idea of shape shifting, absolutely. You know, I talk about Marvel comics, right? Yeah. As as you know, or comics in general, you know, as really representing these fantastical, you know, super mm-hmm. humans who 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 have the ability to shift shape, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, um, whether that shape shifting is happening in a video game, you know, by projecting yourself onto, you know, a film narrative right you know whatever whatever it is by no means am i saying it's only by playing the synthesizer yeah no of course i get that yeah yeah but but playing the synthesizer i think offers one portal to you know to 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 surpassing the limits of the physical body which is right. what shape-shifting is, right. is, is a kind of desire for. Well, I think that's interesting. I think it also ties into all this amazing, um, I'm a Luddite, but one thing I find fascinating is all the research going into people um, with artificial limbs that they can control their limb through their brain. Yeah. And you really are transcending that you're not, I mean, you're using the brain, but you're transcending the human body in mm-hmm. a way where literally they can get commands in the brain to operate, you know, a, a limb. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's where technology is amazing, where you're obviously, again, it now we're looking, you know, pri- the whole that's a whole other discussion and privacy and lack of control or minimizing oneself. One thing that Jared Lanier says that I thought was interesting is, you know, the anonymity that is also released, but also um, promotes cowardice and cruelty in a way that you're not taking responsibility for yourself the mm-hmm. way you used to. It's okay to lose your identity. And in some ways, that's also good because you're losing your your prison of an identity. On the other hand, people are using it for bad, right. not good. And he right. said one thing you can do to combat that is never post an anonymous comment. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's so easy to critique or post cruelty when you're anonymous, but take ownership. I know that was a non sequitur segue, but that happens to me sometimes. Um, do you find identity politics I get, but it also frust- frustrates me at the same time. I understand the need for it. I understand that disenfranchised populations, this country I find so fantastic and also problematic where identity politics becomes so extreme Mm -hmm. where how can you unify a whole country that's so heterogeneous and everybody's so intent now again to establish their different identity 
in order to feel legitimate, mm-hmm. right? After being again patriarchal and, and race relations and white, you know, the white supremacy that ruled over you know for so long. But do you do you feel or do you have any fear that identity politics can also cloud uh, legitimate criticism of a piece? You know, we talked about the criticism of Wendy Carlos's piece, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and the undertone of where that came from. Do you find that that also occurs? Do you encounter that where people where people latch on? Oh, this is just identity politics, but there's actually legitimate criticism. Does that make sense? Does that? Uh, so, so are you asking? Um, I guess in the case of Wendy Carlos, like, you know. Is anyone entitled to criticize her if they don't also embody the world in the way that she embodies it? Is that kind of how I guess so? I'm wondering about that question? too. I'm sure your answer would be yes. Everybody can legitimately criticize if it's coming from the right place. But in today's world, I guess as you deal with critique in academia, mm-hmm. do you feel like sometimes identity politics overpowers what could be a, a a good discourse? But it, you know what I mean, or I don't know the whole argument about eggshells and canceling culture, all that kind of stuff. I just mm-hmm. want to hear your thoughts mm-hmm. on that. I know it's a bigger topic, but just to hear your thoughts. Um, you know, I think in academia, you know, it's it's we are very siloed in the languages that we speak mm-hmm. because of our disciplines. Right. So sometimes it's really difficult to communicate with someone who isn't speaking the language of your, your training and your discipline. So the, right. already th- that's sort of limiting discourse. Yeah. A little snooty. It's, it's just jargon, right? <laughs> right. Like, you know, if right. you talk to an astrophysicist – and, you know, you yourself are, you know, a, a layman. Neuro, a, yeah. Or, yeah. Or you're a neuroscientist. Right. Right. You know, right, right. you're both going to be kind of struggling to understand the nuances of yes. what you're each okay. trying to do. Okay. So, you know, when you're talking about academic work, you know, our job is to, to really kind of engage very minute and nuanced phenomena in the yeah, world yeah. and push the conversation forward ever so slightly. Um, and so to appreciate that, you know, takes a lot of translation work. And it's also like, so you're saying you're not as prone to that issue because it's so, um, it's so specific to a specific question, you know, to a specific issue, and you're dealing with very um, uh, parameters in terms of the language you use. Mm-hmm. That you're not as you're not trying to make it palatable to the masses in a way that can be offensive, or not. You're not dealing with as much that. Like an academic is writing a paper, he's really not going to offend too many people because he's asking a very specific question within those parameters. Is that right? But I mean, obviously, with this book, you know, I've written a popular book. Yeah, and so I I spent a lot of time trying to translate. You know. Yes, for us, us peasants. <laughs> sometimes I have a hard time because sometimes I, I love the world of academia. I think it's necessary. Um, sometimes I get a little eye rolly when you know what I mean. Like people are talking about space and time, and I'm like, it's a book club, yeah. or it's an art project. You know what I mean? I feel like sometimes I get a little like, okay, but I guess you have to in order to survive in that world, you have to ask a very specific question and use that terminology so everybody else can say, okay, we're in that, you know what I mean? We're in right. that world. Right. Um, right. I lived with an architect for like six minutes. I'm not good with relationships. And he would keep saying the words like public, you mixed use space. I'm like, shut the fuck up already with your mixed use space. Just call it a park. Sure. You know what I mean? No, it I happens mean, to have a library. I think technical use. jargon is universally yeah. 
It's fun, but exhausting. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little like, like, okay. But when you want to get this book out, when you go to the publisher and pitch this, right, Uh or whatever, maybe they came to you. As an academic, do you have to have a thesis, an overarching one thesis that you explore through different facets, almost like a paper? I mean, you know, you, you... You do have to create a an abstract, a book okay. proposal. Right. But and it's like one thesis, like this is going to focus on Wendy Carlos's gender identity and the Moog. No, as, okay. no not necessarily. Okay. I mean, when I, when I pitched the project, I kind of thought I was going in a slightly different direction okay. than I ended up going in. Okay. So there's, there's wiggle room. Wiggle room. Okay. You know? Okay. Okay. Let's see if I have any of my little notes. Look, at, I'm academic. I could get a degree. Somewhere. I talked about the Russians. Space race and sound. I like that. Asheville. I love Asheville. Uh-huh. I just I just want to say that. And okay. I'm from Nashville. You're from Nashville? Yeah. Right. So what is your ethnic background? Is that a see again, is that a non PC question to ask? I can't no. tell anybody because one person said I said to someone, What's your ethnic background? They go, I'm American. I guess they got offended. I'm like, on the one hand, you have everybody wanting to assert their identity and give uh-huh. me the subtopics. Sometimes you get offended if I ask you what's your ethnic background. Well, I, I'm I was born in Iran. I'm Iranian. Iranian. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. And Iran, I had a, a man on the podcast, you should listen to it, who talked about the uh, culture of Iran. I mean, it's fascinating, the cultural history of Iran. Mm-hmm, I mean, it's mm-hmm. unbelievable. But is there a um, indigenous population to Iran? Sure. Are there different uh, tribe? No, there is. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, obviously this is impertinent to the book. It but is. I'm sorry, happy to sorry. Talk We're segueing because I'm interested in the author. You know what yeah, I mean? And yeah. what? Yeah. So you know, Iran, um, like every country that you know exists today, yes, is a completely fabricated, you know, delineation by colonialists. Right. So, you know, Iran consists of, you know, at least seven main languages. Okay. And most people only speak one or two of those. And so there's a lot of heterogeneity in the country. It's religiously extremely heterogeneous. Yeah, it's confusing too. On the one hand, they're making great edgy films. On the other hand, you have... The supreme leader. I mean, it's like, what? Yeah, it's politically um, one of the few official theocracies in the world. Right Now, I think many of us understand that there are a lot of unofficial theocracies in the world. (laughs) Um, But it is an official theocracy. And so there is just a lot of very palpable energy, you know, in in that country because there's so many interests working against each other mm-hmm. and so it's it's a very difficult place to summarize how is the lgbtq community treated in iran i mean is it so extreme that you will be executed or are you just people living in secrecy or what you know well i mean in in another aspect of my research i work on uh trans people in Iran. Okay. That's, a, that's, a, that's one of the... That's amazing. Okay. Research okay. So um, there, I think very, very few people know that um, trans, um, essentially re- gender reassignment surgery is subsidized by the nation in Iran. What? Yes. See, that's what's so confusing to me. Right. What, where, why do you think that is? Um, you know, it's it's a very complicated um, history that, you mm-hmm. know, we don't have time to go into, but it was a fatwa that was declared by the Ayatollah Khomeini that that 
people with gender dysphoria essentially have a disability and it's the nation's responsibility to provide them with the health care they need. That's amazing. Yeah. So, it, But it, if they end up becoming, so to speak, homosexual after the gender reassignment surgery, they don't support that. Right. So homosexuality it's like half the journey. is in a different category. Okay. Okay. So, um, so it's identity versus sexual proclivity. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. And you are? I'm Iranian. Iranian, okay. right. And your sexual orientation? Oh, oh I'm a lesbian. You're a lesbian. Yeah. And were your parents, when you came out, were your parents more conservative? Like, how did that fly as people that came to Iran probably as adults? I mean, for, left Iran as adults. Right. Yeah, my parents are amazing and have, you know, been extremely supportive. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And if you wanted to live as a gay woman in Iran openly, that would be problematic. Well, you know, openly is a kind of the 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 important signifier there. Okay. okay? Signifier. Well, okay, tell me break what the word signifier. Signifier meaning like what's the concept that has the most critical, you know, okay. importance. Oh, I like that. Okay. And signifier. so, you know, openly in Iran is for example, as a woman in Iran, I can't just go into the street looking like this. Okay. I have to cover You got to be covered up. Okay. So how can I be openly lesbian um, in the street? Mm -hmm. Well, that's complicated. Right. Because I'm already covered up. You're covered up, but could you uh, kiss your partner on the street? Well, yeah, because um, there is a longstanding cultural practice okay. of homosociality. So... It's not uncommon to see people of the same sex, you know, ex expressing, Canoodling. you know, affection wow, to each other. Yeah. So I think it's much easier to get away with it um, than perhaps, you know, places in the U.S. Yes. Where I would certainly never, right. you know, kiss yes. my same-sex partner in the street. Yeah. I mean, or just walk around ethnic in general, right? I mean, God knows this country. Look, I it's it's problematic. I mean, right. it's this country's is confused. Look, I think Iran is confused a lot. There seems like a lot of mixed messages, and a lot of places are confused. They're confused. I mean, in India, I know they I know the caste system's getting down, but I remember Roman. I've traveled a lot. Men hold hands there all the time, and they're mm -hmm. as friends. There's an open affection there in general. That's yeah. an openness there that's not seen as. Uh, threatening anyone's masculinity if two exactly. men are holding hands as friends where would you see that in this i don't think i mean in general the world i don't think you'd see that in many places two yeah. dudes as friends holding hands right i mean you know it just depends on where unless you they're go. like five you know what i mean right i mean you know i'm just saying it's interesting to me and then they have other things and i'm like what and this, so that's what's fast that's why you're an anthropologist right because mm -hmm. it's so fucking fascinating how messed up we all are am <laughs> i right? right that's right unbelievable i um tried to get wendy carlos's album I could not. I yeah. guess the only place you can actually get this is on her website, which looks like it was designed in 1954 with bad fonts. I got it. I mean, not that my website's anything pretty, but her website is like one font is like 0 0.5 points. You know what I mean? You can't read anything. And then you have to click on a CD icon. I don't have a CD player anymore. You can't get it. So right, how, how right. did you get it? You bought the CD on her website? No, I, I have all her albums. You have and, a record on vinyl. Yeah, in LP form. Can I come over? Sure. You think if I go to Amoeba Music, I could get absolutely, a vinyl? Absolutely. Okay, maybe you I'll can, do that. I got to get a phonograph. You can get the CDs there, too. She actually has a really interesting compilation, which comes in a box set. Okay, I'll do that. And, and I got to buy a CD player. Well, well good I know. Point. So, okay, it's fine. I'd like to, I like records. I like analog. Yes. So she's making analog synthesizer, but then on a digital format. 
Right. Kills me. Right. Kills. Again, oxymoron. I don't know if it's oxymoron. It's a metonym. It's a synonym. It's a metaphor. It's a signifier. It's a lot of stuff. Um, you can get you can get uh, Roshi's book uh, on Amazon and at bookstores everywhere. Um, and it's a great gift. And it's a good coffee table book as well. And it's fascinating. You might want to listen to the album first. I didn't, but I still enjoyed the book <laughs> tremendously. Um, thank you so much thank you. for coming. Uh, thank you for being here. This is Raylan Casper White. I love you all. And we'll see you next week. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.